Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. Babies are made under all kinds of circumstances, but for most of us, they come after at least a little bit of romance. You know, you write each other flirty letters or emails, you go for long walks, you kiss in the snow. Maybe you wind up moving in together and chores enter the picture. So you divvy them up. And if you fall a little bit behind, it's okay. But after the baby, chores become high stakes. It's all about who is taking care of what. You know, who's doing the laundry, who's who's doing the dishes, who's washing the pump parts, who is doing the grocery shopping, giving the baths, the vitamins, who is driving the kid to and from daycare, who's cleaning the cat's litter box. And of course, these questions all boil down to who is doing more? Does one partner think they're doing more? Are they right? How can you even answer that question? I think even couples with the most honest relationships, even the great communicators, find themselves having a version of this conversation in in one way or another after they have a baby. And today, we're going to hear from a couple who've had a real wrench thrown in their relationship in the who does more department, where the division of labor is completely beyond their control. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Jeff and Sarah Overmars have one of the most romantic courtship stories I've ever heard. They met in Halifax, Nova Scotia back in 2004. Um, It was a brutal winter with temperatures getting down to 32 below zero Fahrenheit with the wind chill. Jeff was in journalism school at the time, and in the morning, as he'd walked to class shivering, um, he'd noticed that people were out there running. And and he thought they were crazy. Um, And being a journalism student, he wanted to find one of these crazy people and interview them for a radio story. So um, a friend pointed him to Sarah. She was a drama teacher on campus and a committed runner. So they made plans to meet at a coffee shop. And uh, I told her that I would wear a a certain color hat. An orange hat. Leaving the house that morning. Uh, of course, I couldn't find that hat, so I put on a, a different color hat. So I sat down with a man wearing an orange hat. A man wearing an orange hat who was not Jeff. And then kind of overheard somebody asking, are you Jeff? And then Jeff popped up from the back of the room, calling out, Sarah? Sarah, is that you? They sat down, did the interview. Jeff's story aired on the campus radio station. But some runners still run outdoors in the city even while we were being warned of the dangers of the extreme cold. Runners like Sarah Chesson. I remember it being really comfortable and natural, and and obviously, you know, she was a a smart person who... I didn't think she was smart for running in in minus whatever, but she she was pretty great. Last week's cold didn't slow her down any. Yeah, the coldest run I had was minus 36 with the wind chill, and that was insane. My eyelashes turned white. I asked Chesson why she runs outdoors in the winter when an indoor track is available. 
There's something about and I felt really silly because I was wearing my running clothes during the interview and I thought, God, I don't look very uh, attractive right now. The missing orange hat is now part of Jeff and Sarah's lore, uh, but it's not just a funny story. We'll we'll be getting back to the romance in a bit, but um, for you to fully grasp the depth of this romance, it is key that you understand um, that there was a good reason Jeff couldn't find his orange hat. It's because he's going blind. He has been ever since he was a teenager. When I was 16, I, I woke up one morning and uh, couldn't see out of one of my eyes, noticed a, a large patch of flashing lights that were kind of in the center of my eye. Jeff was pretty freaked out. He'd been working at his parents' service station where there was a lot of welding going on. And he'd been warned that looking directly at a weld could cause permanent eye damage. And, and he worried that that's what had happened. Little did he know, his mom had been waiting his entire life to see if Jeff would wake up to flashing lights. The same thing had happened to her father. It's called choroideremia, so it's a, a rare condition. Choroideremia um, is a condition that causes the retina to lose its function. Um, so the retina is the layer of tissue at the back of your eyeball. Um, it kind of works like film in a camera. When light hits it, it sends nerve impulses to your brain um, and gives you the ability to process images. So when you have choroideremia like Jeff does, your retina works worse and worse over time. Mothers pass it on to their sons. Um, they have a 50% chance, I guess, of uh, actually showing any symptoms or signs or inheriting it. Uh, I have it. Uh, I have another brother that has it, um, and I have another brother that doesn't have it. Jeff had known that his grandfather was blind, but figured it was just because he was old. And his mom had made the decision to let Jeff believe that. There was no way to prevent the condition from surfacing if Jeff had it, so she kept what she knew to herself. So there was no need to kind of give me something to just kind of wonder when the shoe's going to drop sort of thing. Um, so th that's when the shoe dropped, I guess, is when I, I lost that initial bit of sight in my left eye. So they sent me to the city, you know, Halifax, the capital where the, you know, the, the big hospital is and the eye care specialists are. And they give you a test and you, you they put your head in, in a box, essentially, and they, they give you a bunch of flashing lights and you, you push buttons when you see flashing lights. But then if all you're seeing is flashing lights, then you're pushing buttons all the time. And so and what did the doctor tell you to expect? Uh, the doctor said, uh, you're going to go blind <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. And um yeah, you might as well forget getting your driver's license, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. Yeah, it, it's not the... That's heavy for a 16-year-old. Yeah, it, it was heavy. And it's not the, uh, you know, it's not the not the sort of thing you want to hear uh, when you grow up in, in a, a rural community where, you know, having your driver's license is a bit of a rite of passage and, uh, you know, a bit of freedom comes along with that. One of the major symptoms of the condition is night blindness and... Um, Growing up as a child, I guess, you know, I, I never really knew how well you were supposed to see at night. Um, you know, I've got five siblings and lots of young cousins around, so we'd be running around at night and people would be, you know, playing kick the can or whatever outside game would be being played and I'd probably be running behind or, you know, bumping into stuff more frequently than other people and, and not thinking anything of it. And then when the time came, you know, so many years later that you learn that, okay, yeah, this is a, this is a symptom of a condition and, yeah, I have it. Um, you know, I, I suddenly realized, okay, well, you know, obviously people are not bumping into stuff as much as I am for a reason. When 
are you expected to go completely blind? By now, actually. Uh, yeah, in my mid-30s. Looking through my eyes, I describe it to people sometimes as if you were to take a Vaseline and smear it over a camera lens and then kind of look through that camera lens. So out of my left eye, I, that, that's how I describe that. And um, my right eye, which is my good eye, it's, it, the uh, the flashing lights are, and all the the bad vision is kind of working its way from the outside inward, which is, is how the, uh, the degeneration kind of naturally happens. So what, I have this tiny little island of vision, which is slowly getting smaller and smaller. So um, Jeff's not quite blind yet, but just about. Anyway, we've uh, gotten a little sidetracked here. Back to the romance I promised you. So remember, Jeff and Sarah had the interview at the coffee shop. Um, and then maybe a month later, they both have the winter blues and they each decide to go alone to a movie, the same movie. And um, when it's over, Sarah's on the escalator. Then I saw Jeff getting on the escalator. And I had the cane, I think. He had his white cane with him. And I reached out and touched him. And I, I said, hello, Jeff, it's Sarah from the interview. And we walked, um, we continued to walk up in the same direction, up the street. And uh, I started to ask him about his vision loss. And she mentioned um, that her father had been blind and that he had passed away and, and that it wasn't that long ago. The memory of my father was still very uh, fresh. Did your dad use a white cane? He did. He had a cane and it was named Stanley. And it was always by the front door. And, and so I just imagine, like, so I'm picturing this night that you're at the movies and you see this guy mm -hmm. with the white cane. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, he kind of uh, rang out to me, I guess. Like, not to dwell too heavy on daddy complexes or anything like that, but uh, he was, like, especially cute in my eyes. <laughs> Jeff and Sarah part ways at the end of a road. Um, she goes home and writes in her journal that this man is going to be important in her life. But they don't see each other again until a few months later, um, when they accidentally run into each other again uh, on the stairs to a bar. It was Jeff this time who recognized Sarah by her voice. They wound up going dancing together, and, and this time the connection stuck they started making actual plans to see each other. and they, They'd go out at night and they'd do something called Sighted Guide, um, where Sarah would lead Jeff arm in arm around the city. They'd go see bands play and, and Sarah would convince Jeff on some nights to bring his white cane so that people would let them cut to the front. It was all very exciting and new and intimate, but it only lasted a few weeks. I was leaving to go to Teachers College in Toronto, which is several thousand kilometers away, and he was leaving to go to Antigua to teach computers to the blind. After the school year ended, Sarah stayed in Halifax until she had to catch her plane to Toronto. Jeff had moved back home to his parents uh, about two hours away to save money before his trip. He paid Sarah one last visit. They said their goodbyes. And I knew that she was flying out the next morning. So uh, I was pining something desperate. And it was the summertime and it was the evening and I was getting off of work at like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Jeff couldn't just sit there knowing she was about to leave. And so when I, I, I went home, I showered, I put on some clothes and I just started 
walking back towards the highway, which took me like out this rural route of, of a paved road. It took me like a half an hour, an hour to walk to actually the highway where I could begin hitchhiking. You know, and was it dark? It was pitch black. It was midnight. So it was. So uh, how did you do that? You can't. You said you can't see in the dark. No, I know, and and so I, I, I you adapt. Um, so again, I didn't. I didn't have a cane then. So I, I, I walked along the highway with like one foot on the pavement and one foot on the shoulder of the road so that I was able to follow it as I went. And then, uh, you know, found a, a, a street light to stand under on the highway and, you know, was picked up and then driven about half the distance and then dropped off on like this pitch black stretch of road at about like 3.30 in the morning or something. And uh, was picked up just at the, like, the crack of dawn. They drove me the rest of the way to the airport. <laughs> and and were people aware that, that you had vision impairment? Yeah, and then they were, they, you know, I got the, like, what, why are you doing this? They, oh, man, you must be something awful in love or something. And, I, and fortunately, it worked out because, honestly, the opportunity for it not to work out was there. I could have been stuck on the side of the road while she was boarding her flight to leave, and that would have been that, and there would have been no redeeming story or, or God knows what would have happened. But, yeah. It is um, both really freaky and really romantic. I know. It was dangerous and, and freaky and romantic. And also awkward. My mother was there because she was dropping me off. And she said, oh, Sarah, he really likes you. So Jeff and Sarah say goodbye for real. She goes to Toronto. He goes to Antigua. Sarah says she wasn't really looking for a long-distance relationship, but um, Jeff kept the flame alive with his frequent love letters. And um, eventually, they got together as a legitimate couple. They got married, had kids. Libby is, is five and a bit, and Tom is, uh, he'll be two in May. Once we were married, we, we got pregnant pretty quickly. It was just four or five months that we were married, and it was a choice of wanting to start a family early so that Jeff would have a chance to see his children. Have you been able to notice from his behavior that his vision is deteriorating? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Even from baby one to baby two, um, there's a, this thing that happens in our house all the time, which is heartbreaking to watch, where because of Jeff's vision, he doesn't have any peripheral vision. So he will bang into the children. Because they're just the right height, where if you're kind of ambling around the, the room or moving from room to room and you connect with one of them, it's, it's a good, you know, uh, knee to the sternum or shoulder or forehead. It used to happen with Libby from time to time, but it happens with Tom almost, almost daily. As you can imagine, being unable to see your kids when they're right in front of you makes taking them out of the house really difficult. If in a crowd of people where there are lots of children, am I going to be able to grab the right one at the right time? Uh, now that Libby's five, she can, you know, grasp the concept of, of her own safety. So, you know, Libby, are, are you looking out for yourself? Because, you know, daddy is is doing it, but he might not be doing it well enough. Um, I uh, I don't feel safe, like, even pushing a stroller or pulling a wagon you know I'm, I'm always just very concerned that i'm you know i'm not going to see a car in a crosswalk not being able to see your kids also means you can't see your kids stuff so all the time it's who put what where and where did it go and was it you jeff that put something somewhere and forgot about it or was it somebody else that moved it for example on sunday um we lost the baby wipes i was upstairs 
changing a rotten diaper. She asked where the wipes were. She yelled from from upstairs to downstairs, and I, you know, I answered with a yell that they're, you know, they're on the change table where they should be. And, and of course, a few hollers back and forth that no, they weren't there, and where were they? And I don't know where they are. They should be there. I didn't move them. You know, what do you mean you didn't move them? They're not here. I didn't move them. Well, maybe the baby moved them. He came stomping along and was really angry that I couldn't see them, and he was tearing apart the baby's room trying to find them. Like, these baby wipes might as well have been diamonds for the way (laughs) that it was coming across and, like, the importance of this. After all of that transpired, Karen, Sarah's mother, you know, yelled, well, oh, I, don't you remember, Sarah? I took them when we changed them before, and they're on Libby's bed, and that was how that story ended. And there's been lots of those moments of, like, oh, for crying out loud. Like, we are, you know, we would be funny if we were a sitcom right now, but this is our life. You know, I feel like so much of my job as a parent is um, looking for that thing. Yes. Whatever it is that my daughter (laughs) dropped somewhere Uh when she just you know, momentarily decided she was done with it and dropped it wherever she was. And then is like, mommy, I can't find my doll or I can't find my purse, you know. I feel like we're Libby's five now where we've hit a groove. She has a love of teeny tiny things. She loves like anything that's completely, yeah, impossible to, to keep track of. Um, so she's always like, where's little dog? Where's little dog? And uh, we're running through the house trying to find little dog. It can't be helped. The job of looking for stuff mainly falls in Sarah's lap. It has to. So does noticing if there's anything going wrong with the house um, and the cooking and the driving. You know, of course, Jeff never did get his driver's license. Um, and Sarah actually wound up driving herself to the hospital while she was in labor with her first child, which was a choice. You know, they they could have called a cab. But, um, you know, these days, if the kids need to get somewhere by car, Sarah takes them to school, to to play dates, um, to activities. She drives them to visit grandparents and on family trips. It's exhausting. Um, At times, I feel really overwhelmed by it all. And um, sometimes I feel kind of... um, Hard done by. Yeah, I, uh, I, I guess I feel a, a bit, a bit like a, a disappointment sometimes. Uh, as a, as a dad, I worry that I'm, I'm going to be perceived as a, a dad that, that, you know, wasn't active enough or doing enough for my children or with my children. But I think there are a lot of things that I, that I, that I do do. Jeff takes the kids' places on the bus. He um, keeps them occupied while Sarah makes dinner. He uh, he cleans up the vomit from the back seat while Sarah is driving. You know, he, he does what he can to even out the work. But um, even so, Sarah often feels like she's doing the heavy lifting. The flip side of that, though, is she gets to see. There's a lot of, especially when your kids are young, there's so much joy that I get. I get from just sitting back and watching them play or watching them interact with the world. And there's so many subtle visuals in something like that, that although Jeff can make out a lot of it, there's little things he doesn't and little visual cues and, and, uh, you know, just moments of, you know, when Tom looks at him with complete adoration, 
that I think Jeff knows Tom is there, but he doesn't know he's staring into his eyes. And, uh, and I think that that's really hard to see. And once in a while I'll say like, oh, you should see the way Tom is looking at you right now. Or you, you know, oh my goodness, the smile on Libby's face right now is unbelievable. Um, but I can't, you know, it's, it's a role that I can't put myself in, um, that I'm not going to narrate the world for him. And I mean, at times I think that's important, but I remember my mom uh, going to see Forrest Gump with my father and she whispered almost every detail into his ears and he turned to her and said, it's okay, I've got it. <laughs> and I remember thinking, yeah, you know what, that's, that's too easy. And I, I don't think I've ever asked for a narrator either because, yeah, I'm definitely uh, capable of perceiving and understanding what's going on. If I have a question about what's going on, I'll, I will never hesitate to ask her. And if the time comes where she gets tired of those questions coming willy-nilly, um, she can tell me that too and, and we'll definitely be able to, to deal. With so much focus on who does what and, and when Jeff needs help or doesn't need help and what's fair and not fair, there isn't much room in Jeff and Sarah's life for romance. I mean, you know, they, they go on dates here and there, but they tell me that the most romantic times they have these days seem to happen surprisingly when the entire family is in the car. It'll be one of those days in the spring or summer when Sarah does feel like going for a drive. They'll, um, they'll take the kids and strap them in their car seats and wait for them to pass out in the back. And then they'll listen to music together or just, just enjoy talking together as a couple. It's no hitchhiking to the airport blind in the middle of the night. But for now, while the kids are still small, it's what they've got. Jeff Overmars turned 35 this week. That's the age when he thought he'd lose his vision entirely. Jeff's got an alarm clock at the side of his bed that lights up. And first thing every morning, he rolls over, looks at the clock, and checks to see if he can still see the numbers. Do you feel like you're just dreading the day that you wake up and you can't see the numbers on that clock? Sometimes. Sometimes it's dread, and then other times it's... um. It's like I kind of can't, I can't wait for it to happen so that it's just over with, so that I can actually get on with learning how to be a, a blind dad. We've got pictures of Jeff and Sarah um, in the backs of Jeff's deteriorating eyeballs at our website, longestshortesttime.com. Jeff says that for the first time, there's actually some promising research to find a cure for his eye condition, choroideremia. You can find out more about that at our website as well. Today's episode was brought to you with support by MailChimp, the people behind Tiny Letter. Tiny Letter, email for writing home about your tiny people. Um, new mom Molly says this week she'd write home about her daughter who taped a kick me sign to her 10-month-old's back, never too early to start pranking your siblings. Support today also comes from diapers.com. Get 20% off your first order at diapers.com or any of their other sites where you can find diapers, wipes, and all kinds of teeny tiny things that you'll be running around your home looking for. Where's little dog? Where's little dog? With the code LONGEST20. That's LONGEST20. 
Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. I'm Hilary Frank, back in two weeks at 3 a.m. with a new episode of The Longest Shortest Time. And as always, if you have a story of a surprising struggle in early parenthood that you'd like me to consider for this podcast, go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, right. worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.